Oh, hi. This is a brand new podcast. And in it, we're going to meet both people behind the electronic music that we love. And we're going to meet the people who make the equipment that they use to make the electronic music we love. In all these things, there is an amazing human story to be told. And it asks that eternal question. Why we bleep? shenanigan has been brewing for some time you know i'm an electronic musician although i slightly bulk at using the term musician because i'm not classically trained i have absolutely no idea how to play the piano as such um but i make music that's the beauty of electronic music as brian eno says you remove the issue of skill and you replace it with that of judgment anyone with a sufficiently developed sense of judgment can become an electronic musician Physical dexterity is removed from the whole process. And it's something that can be done entirely solo. Just you in your room is all you need. And so it's such an accessible hobby. You just need ears and some kind of input method. And all of us have computers. Our computers are fantastically powerful. We can do anything with them. And of course, we're living in just this stupidly incredible golden age where Music technology equipment, synthesizers, modular synthesizers, Eurorack synthesizers have never been more available, easier to get hold of, or cheaper than they are now. It is stupendous. It just gets better and better. And my personal madness for the last few years has predominantly revolved around Eurorack synthesizers. But that isn't exclusively what I use. Hell no. For those who've been following my YouTube channel, you may not realize, but I am very much a proponent of computer-based music as well. I make music using Ableton Live almost every day. Although a lot less so recently due to having to maintain a YouTube channel. But that is where I'm the most productive, frankly, in terms of actually producing finished music. But the amazing thing about getting into Eurorack particularly is as soon as you do a bit of research, it leads you to maybe send a few emails, ask a company a question, you know, why is this doing this or what is that and, and what do I need to make this work? And when you send that email, you get a reply. And the amazing thing about Eurorack is so often that reply comes from the actual person who designed the damn thing that you are asking about. If you email Dupfer about something, and I've done this, it's very likely you'll get a reply from Dieter Dupfer himself. And Dieter is the guy who co-pioneered the format of Eurorack. And I find that incredible, you know, the closeness that you have to the people of Eurorack creates and fosters this kind of community that's just it's so small if you go to a, any kind of modular meet it's so likely you're going to have the manufacturers there and i think there are precious few industries these days where it's so tight-knit and close where the free sharing of ideas with the people who are designing the equipment to the people who are using it it's just so close and bonded and I think that's definitely something to celebrate. And I'm sure it's a contributing factor to the success of the format. And over the years, I've met those people and heard their stories. 
And that's basically what's inspired this podcast, because there's just so many interesting people in this industry and in the electronic music industry in general. It's a human story like all stories are. And I just think there's a huge value in understanding more about the process and stories behind the music and the equipment. And it's kind of a twofold thing. You know, in meeting manufacturers, it helps us deepen our understanding of the thought processes that go into the equipment. And it might inspire new ways for us to use it. And in terms of the electronic musicians that we'll meet, I'm always fascinated to understand their process. How do they make their electronic music? What idiosyncrasies have they learned? What do they say they would do differently if they could do it all again? Because as electronic musicians, so many of us, really most of us, and I include myself very much in this, are self-taught. We're all just trying to scrabble and teach ourselves how to do this moment by moment. So it's hugely valuable to share in the experiences of other people, work out what do you do? Maybe I can learn from that process too. And so that is what we're going to try and do. And that leads us to this first guest, Tom Whitwell. So Tom is a man that I have had some contact with for many, many years because Tom used to run a blog called Music Thing. Those of you who've been around for a while will probably remember Music Thing. It was a brilliant, slightly irreverent, but uniquely curated blog at a time where we didn't really have a lot of very good electronic music technology blogs and it shouldn't be very surprising that Tom was such an engaging person to read because he is a journalist. In fact, believe it or not, Tom was the former editor of Mixmag from 1999 to 2002. He was the deputy editor of Face magazine from 2002 to 2004, consulted on NME and Loaded, and was the head of digital at The Times from 2007 to 2012, and co-introduced the paywall at The Times, quite interestingly. So he's product development consultant now with a company called Flux. But... On the side, he has started a small, very small business called Music Thing, which is obviously the name of the blog, but Music Thing, most people now think of as a modular synth brand. So in later years, Tom had been tinkering with, with various projects, so making guitar pedals and, and self-teaching himself to do these things in his shed in the garden. And obviously Tom, like all people, slowly got led down the Eurorack garden path. And as we're going to talk about, it's led to some of the most popular DIY modules in the entire format. I think the main thing isn't so much the story of, of how he did his whole thing, but it's just, just simply listening to Tom's interests. Tom's interest in this whole endeavour, and by that I mean electronic music, is vastly deep. He's fascinated with the composers and history, the human stories behind it. In fact, actually, I relatively recently released a video in which Tom gives a potted history of synthesizers, but he does so focusing on the technology that was inside the synthesizers at the time. And it's also a very human history. He's just a very, very interesting dude and has, has excellent taste in music, minimalism, tinkering, and it's just a, a very engaging dude to talk to. So I trust you'll be interested, as I was, to meet him too. And with that, let's do the podcast. 
funny thing about music thing is it's basically I'm trying to work out what it is. Like, yeah. what, what is music thing? Because it's not a, it's a brand, but you're not a manufacturer. No, but you are, but you're not. So, well, so it started out as a blog in of course in the uh, which I remember the noughties. Um and then I sort of gave it up because I didn't have time to carry on doing it. I suppose the thing I did was just not taking it seriously in terms of up to that stage there was lots of people writing about here is music gear and it is important and it will make you make better music and it will have this amazing tone and all of this stuff and I suppose I was just saying this is stuff that we like and stuff that we're into and stuff that I find really exciting and stuff that has amazing stories because they're attached to famous people so something that was used by Aphex Twin or Stevie Wonder or whoever it was yeah, yeah. is no, just much, much more interesting that. than something that wasn't. Mm. And we could. Uh, it was also the time when software meant you could just do anything in software. If you wanted to make music and the... the, the I got a friend who's a composer and he... A, a TV soundtrack, a film soundtrack composer. And he's like... I'm not going to have time to mess about with this stuff. If the producer rings up at 11 o'clock and wants an extra three minutes, I'm not going to start cracking open some enormous modular synth, but I will... So I'll be able to do an awful lot of it in software and I'll be able to sample things and do that. So that was becoming possible and that meant, I think, that the hardware suddenly had a very different kind of just fetish interest mm. in it. So uh, it was the hardware was able to be like a play thing and not yeah. like a work thing. Yeah, exactly. So, and, I, yeah. I, and I think people were using the software and getting more and more interested in the hardware. So at that stage, manufacturing was a lot more complicated and difficult. It was at the time when it was just the beginning of that kind of maker movement, the yeah. beginning of DIY, the beginning of kind of Arduinos and things. And I remember I was I was writing for make magazine when it first started and just the beginnings of that being possible and i remember so i stopped doing music thing because my work job was was too busy um and then a few years later the i just got more and more interested in that sort of electronics stuff so it was started with um started with doing uh arduino then doing sort of um guitar pedals and that sort of thing and it was a time that you were starting to be able to get stuff made in China much more cheaply and easily. Mm. So you started to be able to say, okay, you can design this circuit board and you can send it to China and they will send you back 10 of them for 25 quid. In some ways, when, when blogging started, it was like that for publishing. So if I had wanted to do music thing in 2005 before blogging existed... I would have had to go to Future Music and get them to invest half a million or a million pounds in there, get a team, get publishing, get advertising. You know, that was because my background before that was in magazines and it mm. was a very difficult, elaborate, capital-intensive business. When blogging came along, you could say, I want to do a blog about weird synthesizers. It would cost literally nothing to produce. It would produce negligible revenue mm. <laughs> um, but it could reach you know tens of thousands of people so what then happened sort of a few years later sort of 2010 2012 was you, I started to be able to see there'd be a way of doing that with hardware so the original idea for the the Turing machine when I sort of designed this circuit I thought I didn't want to 
do manufacturing. I didn't like the idea of trying to stuff boxes and, and make sell it, boxes. Do you make it yourself, it. yeah. Um, so I published it the way you'd publish a blog. I said, these are the kit of parts. So if you take this file and send it to China, they'll send you circuit boards. If you take this file and send it to Mouser in, in um, Texas, they will send you the components you need. If you take this file and send it to anyone with a laser cutter, they'll make you the front panel. Um, and this is a license that enables you to do that. Uh, and almost you'd open sourced it. Yeah. So I, I and that just came from looking at how people were doing things within that open hardware community. Why? Why see, were you not? Why was there no inclination to try and? I know you didn't want to make it, but you were like actively not wanting to make any money on it. It wasn't not wanting to make any money on it. Obviously, there was an element of I couldn't see this being something that would make money. Um, but it was more and the experience of doing the blog was that you get something out, you get an audience for it, and then you figure out, is there some way of making money from it later? Mm. And so the blog used to make a few thousand pounds a year from Google ads and that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Um, so I published it and almost immediately, um, uh, Steve, who now runs Thonk, said, tell you what, I'll make some kits of this. I'll do a group buy for this. Um, and I thought, well, that's great. That makes the whole thing much easier for yeah, people. For everyone, it, it can happen. Pile in. Um, and he started doing that. And over time, that evolved into into Thonk. Um, so the Turing machine was literally the start of his business, effectively. The way I remember it was, you <laughs> right. have to check with him. He may <laughs> have a very different memory. But that, was, that was the way I remember it, was that, that he he just took that on and said, this is how we're going to... It was obviously an agreement, this. and like, as you say, you know, he pays you a, a license. A royalty but that was that was actually much later on. At the beginning, right. it was purely, I'm going to have a go at this, and I said, great. It was just like go feeling that it didn't necessarily, it wasn't, you weren't going to sell that many, or yeah. it wasn't going to be that interesting to people. Um, and, and so that mm. then gradually, that has become a much more robust you know business relationship um yeah and so and that's been very good for me i mean very very lucky with that in that he has done a great job of that so he does really good customer service people like him it, it works very well you still haven't um, made like turing machines as a finished pro you know no we haven't, we haven't amazing made... how prolific it is yeah and everyone's made their own yeah because i'm like i know i've made one but do most, are most people bothered? But like, would they want to do that? I, I think, think they do. I mean, I think that's <laughs> part of it as well in that people are much more attached to something they've made themselves. I think. Mm. I think if you if you buy something and you like it, that's fine. You can be ev evangelical about it a certain amount, but if you've actually made it yourself and you're not a professional and it's something you started. With, I mean, the the one that, that to some extent I find more amazing is the microphony. The the little contact mic mm. module because that was almost a kind of conceptual joke really <laughs> when i did it i just thought could you do this would it be interesting to mm. do um didn't really think couldn't really think what it'd be useful for i just thought it was an interesting <clears> idea <throat> um and that then got picked up it was very cheap very easy to make it was a really good kind of gateway thing. So people, I think, saw that and thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll have a go at that. Mm. You know, if it doesn't work, I've lost 30 quid or something. Yeah, like, who cares? Um, and then people started using it in interesting ways. So then um, the Mutable Instruments gang started using it with, uh, I think, with Elements originally and with some of the Clouds alternative mm. firmware. 
then Olivier came to me and said, well, I want to do one of these as mutual instruments. I said, well, obviously you can. That's how it, how <laughs> it works. Because it's open source, just um, like your stuff, actually. And it's... also, and it, it worked perfectly because his stuff was, was all on exactly the same license. Mm. Uh, and I was just enormously flattered to have him doing that because I'd written about him, you know, 10, 12 years ago, a music thing, when he was making software for... Bargy's Loops. Yeah. He made Bargy's Loops. Yeah. I think I actually probably discovered Bargy's Loops through music thing. Yeah. I bought a Palm Pilot just to run Bargy's Exactly, Loops, and it was an amazing thing at the time. Not yeah. because of Bargy's Loops, but because of the shitness of Palm Pilots yeah. like, at the time. So, so it was amazing for him to do that, and it was really interesting to see his process from one remove, because he got in touch and said, you know, I'm doing this thing... He added so much to the circuit. He made the circuit so much just technically better and robust. more robust. Yeah. And it was about a year, year and a half of prototypes for this really small, really simple just that model. tiny little thing. And I would get, he would send me the first prototype and then something would come back with tiny changes on it. And he'd be like, oh, do you think that's better? And I was like, it all sounds great. Yeah. Um, and just seeing that level of kind of commitment and effort that he puts into that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, such a simple, it really is a simple product. Yeah. I have no idea it would take that long to find. Yes, define. so it was, I mean, it wouldn't, for me, if I was yeah. doing it, I would say, does this work? How can I figure out the interface so it's useful, so it's interesting? How can I get it out quickly and easily? But yeah. he was optimizing and optimizing. He spent a really long time on the, the front panel, the textures area with the kind of raised PCB on it. I just said, oh, a, a circle would be nice. Uh, and then and he spent a lot of time in it, and then I revised the panel, you know, doing more with it, really. Yeah. Um, so that was a really, and that just, you, you see those all over the place, and I think people are much more just committed to them because they built it, and they will then mm. spend a bit of time working out how to use it. They will say, I can't sell it because it's not really worth anything, but they then figure out interesting, clever things to do with it. I saw a, um, a product that made me think about that. So, um it was, it's called the A-Frame. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like, um, it's a guy who is, I believe the guy who started Roland's son, who is involved with it. Basically, I was at NAMM and they were doing a demo. Someone said to me, I'll go over into the corner of the thing. And there's this like A-Frame thing. And it's basically like, um, it literally is like a, a triangle of, of wood with a membrane. And on the back of it, it's got like a little sort of, you know, bit of a little control box basically and you strike and and like uh, yeah. rub your hand on the surface and you can you can put it under tension like there's a tensioning sort of membrane and it knows how much pressure you've put on it um and it, like a lot of things at nam you know you sort of walk around especially downstairs in hawley and it's, it's just the best spectator sport really it's like <laughs> just the weirdest stuff but and I, I initially was like, that's just fucking stupid. Like, that's just like, all right, mate, whatever. But I put the headphones on and it it was an extraordinary sounding thing. And as far as I can tell, it is basically a membrane and like a physical modeling engine yeah. strapped to the side of it. So it's that idea that with the combination of a microphone and the textures and the sort of, you know, obviously there's pressure too, but strap that to a physical modeling engine. Yeah. And you've got something that was really... It didn't sound like anything that I. It didn't. It sort of sounded like it was a. It was a percussion instrument, but not yeah. one that I'd ever heard. And they they combined it with like loads of other things, probably and reverb and. But it really. And does it awesome. feed back into the skin? 
I don't. Is that know. the other thing that would be yeah. really interesting? Is potentially. That, yeah. I mean, there's probably a lot of there's probably different synth modes in it as yeah. well. But yeah. it's fundamentally, you could tell that it was you were hearing part of the actual the memory yeah. itself. So it's very much. And I basically, I was playing with the thing. I was like. I sort of sat down and played with it, put it on and did it. And the guy's like smiling. He's like, what do you think? I'm like, this is incredible. I was like, how much is it? Yeah. And he's like, it's $1,500. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And then, but then I was like, shit, maybe the microphone and rings could yeah. do it. And I've not really tried. And maybe that's, but I, I can think that only something like that would get Olivier so excited that he wanted to, yeah. As a man who's like clearly into his physical modeling, it's, yeah, yeah. it had to be yeah. so. But I don't know, not tried it. So, um, what I mean, obviously, we're talking about microphone, but I do want to talk about the inception of of the Turing machine. Yeah. And what I mean, obviously, written about it, but I've never heard you so, talk about it. So, it was, uh, so I was in, I'd done little bits of DIY. So, I got, got into, into Euro when somebody. Group of friends took me to an event that um, Postmodular did in Vauxhall, uh, and I remember going along and then just talking to them about it and thinking this might be quite interesting. Mm. And it was at the time when um, uh, when Schneider's had a showroom in yeah, Rough Trade. Indeed, in, yeah, in, I remember that. So you could. It was a time when you could actually go in and see this stuff easily. And I suppose you've got we've got um, London Modular now, so you can do the same over yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and immediately I got, uh, so I've been making kind of guitar pedals and stuff and Arduino stuff. And as soon as I got it, I was interested in working out how to do little, you know, DIY things. So I built is that because you kind of thought it would be, surely it's easier, like the appeal of Eurorack is that all the power size. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an like, easy, it's a really easy, uh, I mean, it's a platform really. You yeah. Know? And it's, it, whereas making, also making guitar pedals you make a fuzz and you make a delay and then you have to be really really into fuzzes <laughs> to just keep <laughs> making more and more of them it's the kind um, of the fuzz is a thing you can make badly and it still sort of does yeah its job. and i mean and people get really really obsessed with that but i wasn't as interested in that as i was so so i made like a little sequencer um one of those baby eight sequencers um made a little sort of Arduino clock thing for taking MIDI in and putting clock dividers out. Had you had you bought like a Euro system or you just bought Yeah, I bought I bought a, like a dub for case and a few bits and pieces. Um and and the thing and I had a, a pressure points and mm. and so it's kind of eight step sequencer. And the thing I realized I liked doing or the thing what I did was set up a random sequence had it playing and then kind of changed little bits and pieces as it was going along. Mm. And I thought, well, this is sort of pointless in that I have an, I have an interface that's suggesting like fine conscious changes. Mm. Like I'm sitting here setting these knobs in some position and all I'm doing is setting them randomly and then changing them and listening and, and that sort of thing. So I thought, is there a way of doing something that could do these loops automatically so i'm not pretending to make them do you mean uh, as in you didn't trust your own ability to like make good loops it just didn't just seem like, it just didn't seem like why could right. I, why should i do this when a machine yeah it, for it, me? it was it was why am i why am i randomizing something <laughs> right for its when own sake a machine can randomize it but were you not and trying to just, make you weren't trying to make music as such i was making i was making loops of things you know i was make i was interested in that in that it wasn't it was. It just sort of didn't seem 
right that I was I was using the, you know I felt like if I've got a sequencer that's got a whole row of knobs on it I should be setting them in some conscious deliberate way okay and I wasn't I was just setting them randomly and enjoying the results I was getting out of a out of a quantizer um so I used the old Nord G2 modular mm. the free I used to have one but I was using the free version of it to to prototype it because that's got shift registers it's got lots of logic in it that makes it quite powerful for that sort of thing and i suppose and i was looking at things like ken stone so ken stone has a module called the gated comparator which i still don't really understand how you're supposed to use it and what it's supposed to do what, for a musical purpose um yeah but it's a it, it's it's a weird complicated module but when you looked at how it works the actual there's, there's chunks of that circuit that are in the Turing machine in terms of it's a shift register, uh, which is this kind of binary sort of loop of memory. Um, and also looking at things like the um, the Buchler source of uncertainty, mm. you could see things that that was doing, which again were kind of random and changing and quantized and then something in that area. And I suppose I was listening to a lot of um, you know, Steve Reich and Philip Glass and that mm. sort of thing at the time. So you had that idea of taking these kind of gradually changing loops and gradually changing... Sort the, of key the, the key is the key is that they didn't change that often. No. As in that, that they were effectively looping, but you were able to just, just like a tap, just allow a little yeah. a little change to creep in. So once I'd really, once, once I'd designed that, it was then just saying, how do you create something that does that but is simple and, and sort of intelligible? Because... Mm. There are loads and loads of things that you can add onto it. There's loads of things that you can see and you start thinking, you know, I remember thinking about putting glide into it a lot and thinking, oh, I could have that. So it could sort of step between things. You could see lots of different possible outputs that you could have. But it was very, the, the trick was really just saying, trying to work out how you can pare all that down and how you can get it as small and as simple and as minimal and mm. as... as as lightweight as possible. So you were consciously trying to design a product. It wasn't, you weren't, you know, if this was a, I like was a project designing something. Sake, it could have been as complicated as you wanted it to be. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I wanted something that I could share. So that was the point. I wanted something that I could, because I, I had shared projects by that stage. So I don't know. I did a spring reverb as well. Mm. that was shared. Um, and you know, people react to it and people talked about it and people would make them, mm. you know, which was really exciting. Yeah, so that was the first thing. That, that, this, I'm trying to think how, in as well, like you just basically posted it on Mothwiggler and then yeah. had a, a little video of it making a little yeah. loop. And it was, it's it was just, exactly that. Why, yeah. why did it take off? What was the... What? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think part of it is that it's something you've made yourself. Um, I think part of it was we are in a world of repetitive electronic music. And it was very specifically designed for making it repetitive is, electronic music. It, is, it yeah. is like that exemplar of techno. And this surgeon who uses the, yeah. the Turing machine and who he said, well, I, I can't remember the exact words, but words to the effect of that, you know, techno is just repeating randomness until yeah. it's no longer random, you know. Like any loop that the Turing machine makes, if you loop it more than once, yeah. it becomes deliberate. And that's something I found a lot with when I was reading about it. There was a thing I did later on, which was... Uh, thing for playing pianos so i was interested in this idea of loops your practice and, yeah, piano sort of, practice thing well there's that one there's a player piano one that's like that and it's like it's that box there see this um 
which is just an Arduino with a MIDI output on it and some some knobs. But the idea was to say, well, the, the idea of that was so this plays the piano for you. Yeah, that plays. So the you piano don't need for to. You. That's great. Exactly. <laughs> I need one of those. And so the idea of that was was I was just really interested in that idea of how do you what is it how do you make something that automatically plays, and what what I found really interesting with that was the the very first version of it was create a random whatever sixteen notes, pick a scale, or they were all just locked to a scale. Pick notes from that scale across different octaves. Uh, pick random velocities, and repeat it, and gradually change it. So mm. change one note every every four bars or whatever. And you do that, and it sounds really really good. If you <laughs> listen, if you listen to it back to a recording of it, it sounds really good. And you're like, well, that's 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 Very quite awesome. nice <laughs> because the the random velocity makes it feel like it has expression in it. Mm. And the the fact it's all in one scale makes it melodic and, and makes it make and, sense. Yeah. And the re repetition means you can learn it and you can understand it. And I and I then thought, well, that's really exciting. Carried on working on it, trying to make it more and more complex and adding things like Markov chains that are supposed to make it kind of self similar. Anything you added to it made it less interesting. Right. And you mean it the simpler did, it was, the better it was. The, well, it did make me wonder that. And it was interesting when it came out recently with um, that story about Spotify and the relaxing piano music. Did you hear about no, this? No, so Spotify have a playlist that is relaxing piano That's like music. one of their biggest it's, playlists. It's like Inaudi type stuff. Yes. And they they found, somebody researched this and discovered that there were quite a lot of artists on there that don't exist anywhere else in the world. And they said their speculation is that Spotify have generated this music because they don't have to then play license to anyone else. And as soon as I read that, I was like, that is a hundred percent. I'm amazed they even have a human being doing it because, because literally I have built you can not with any particular programming skills, you really can produce something that makes pretty credible, relaxing piano music as much as you want hours at a time. Mm. Very, and, and it was, and it, it does, you know, it did make me. Do you th is that true then? Did they? Did they? I don't know how they produced it, but it was definitely. I mean, they've denied it, but it was definitely a story that that there's a bunch of artists on there, and people are like, where do these artists exist? I think they might have a a homepage that looks a bit tenuous, like they've just. I, I can't remember that story, but it was. It, it did make me think that there's there is a certain amount of musical activity that. Is you can produce music that is really pleasant to listen to and enjoyable, and I will enjoy listening to. It doesn't, but it doesn't actually need a human, and it doesn't need to be particularly clever either. And there's, no. there's a lot of people doing really, really sophisticated work about auto composition and auto. You know, they've been doing it for for decades, and I was just amazed that literally random notes and random velocities and repetition. Does it? But does it have to be slow to sort of? I think. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think you would. You, it's intolerable it a, if it was fast. What is that? What's that thing like when it's like high? Well, actually, when you do it really fast, it turns into noise, and it's quite interesting because <laughs> you're flowing, throwing notes into a piano. Um, what I've never Black done is tried it. it with a um, with a proper uh, disclavier, yeah, yeah which would be. be incredible. That would be. <laughs> but um, you get to the, those like Heathrow Airport where there's yeah. one and just like sort of quickly like <laughs> exactly. you know, just see if anyone notices, just stow it under the thing. Yeah. 
That's like... Um, but it was quite... It was definitely slightly disappointing. You just thought, well, actually, maybe quite a lot of this composition is is just repetition. Do you mean your composition in general is well, just more or less bunk? <laughs> well, no, in that it's more or less bunk, in that it's in that there are things that go, you know, human, I mean, I suppose I particularly like repetitive music. Yeah, I always, definitely. I've <laughs> definitely had no, you know, I, I can't think of any piece of music that I would say was boring because it was repetitive. You know, I can sit and listen to something very repetitive mm. for a very long time. Well, there is some, I again, can't remember the exact quote, but there is a Brian, you know, quote where he talks about, you know, even music that's repeating the same notes, it's different every time because yeah. it's different to us. So it's yeah. like, it's not repeating, even though it is playing the same technical piece. Well, there's actually, that it reminds me, there's that, uh, there's an amazing Brian, you know, story about exactly this, where he um takes a tape recorder out and records street noise while he's walking around Marble Arch, I think, and walks past the edge of like Speaker's Corner. He records whatever it is, four minutes of it. I think it's four minutes of it's kind of pop song length. And then he listens to it over and over again. And he learns it and it becomes music because he knows what's coming. He oh, knows how it works. Yeah. He knows the sequence he's got, you know, and as far as he's concerned, because it has that repetition, even at that length, um, then it, yeah. it works. And there was a there was yeah. a study over in the other day about um, very difficult kind of classical, you know, um, just completely unrepetitive, very difficult to listen to austere classical, you know, nineteen thirties, forties classical music, um, where they were playing that to students and just putting very simple loops in it, like you know, chopping the thing in half and repeating it, uh, or putting very small, you know, chopping all of that, and asking the students for their reactions to it. And literally the same piece of music, just with loops artificially put into it, they said, oh, this is much nicer to listen to, I much mm. more enjoy it, without realising what had been done to the music. Mm. Yeah. So I think... I, well, I, know, I, I just think of the Turing machine, it's like, I know I like listening to loops, and I know it yeah. works, because I've literally done it, and it's... That's how I make music is effectively, yeah. ultimately, you know, if you go to a piece of equipment or a piano, you are effectively just seeking some randomness that you make into a non-random thing by repetition. Yeah. It's, it's exactly the same principle as, as just asking a machine to do it. Yeah. And it's, that's why, I mean, the Turing machine is, I mean, of course it's musically valid, uh, mainly because it's, then it's the human that gets to decide what the loop is. You get yeah. to decide when to lock it. Um, yeah. Although I've never, to be honest, I've never really experimented with the whole CV locking, which I probably no, should. Which you can do, but it is quite fiddly to do. It's just, you but also, I just like, I like, I like to yeah. get to choose, that's sort yeah. of the point. Yeah. Um, but maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't need me. <laughs> it doesn't need me to pick the loops. Well, I think people have done that where you just, you know, you, you set it off and leave it and then it will play forever and it will mm. change. And I think, it's not especially good for doing that, but you can do it where it will change every, you know, 16 bars. Because uh, you just I've, leave it to it. Also, the thing I find about the, the Turing machine is that it's not quite... The patterns it makes are not random. It has its own little, like, idiosyncrasies and cadences. So that's I sometimes got annoyed yeah. with mine. I thought it was yeah. broken, so I was like, why do you keep doing that? Where it's like... So that's because of the, um, the analogue-to-digital conversion. So that's because... Essentially, if you imagine one bit, kind of, you got eight bits which it's converting. So it's taking it's taking eight bits and turning into numbers. So if, if all eight bits are lit, 
it's kind of one 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 one, which in binary is like two hundred and fifty six. I think so this makes a really high or sixty four or to, either way, it's it's a big number. If none of them are lit, it's zero. And is that what it's doing? So it's, whenever it's it gets, whenever it samples, it's looking at all of whether the lights those are on eight or off. Things, if they're on or off, and reading that as a adding them number, up yeah. and then making a, a CV value. Based yeah, and on it that. adds them up not in a so the one on one end will be like sixty four. And one on the other end will be one. Oh, so because they, they kind have of, influence. Yeah, so it's, so it's so sliding scale. Because of that, if you have one spot moving across, it will always move up in a particular scale. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I then did the Volts Expander, which doesn't have that. So the Volts Expander will produce quite different melodies and it won't sound the same. Okay. <laughs> what, yeah, because I, I still don't really understand how Volts works. So Volts, Volts and... takes, well, I mean, that's exactly how it does work, and that's the <laughs> real point of it. But Volts takes five of those steps and creates a digital to analog converter where you set the values for the steps. So you could so program Volts to do exactly the same as the the main bit, but you obviously don't. Okay. Uh, and, and I like it because it's you also just you've got one more bit to... You can kind of mould the pattern mm. slightly more than you could otherwise. Um, I think it's probably similar to that... Um, what's that big, massive sequence of the... Um, there's another enormous DIY project, which is a an enormous... The Klee, the Klee, Klee sequence. Klee, Klee, Klee. Yeah. I, I think that works... Or what that is. Yeah. Like, I always think it seems interesting, but yeah. I don't know why. I think that is like a massive um, version of Volts. Okay. Possibly sounds good. <laughs> like one. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you make music with this stuff as well? Just to be. That was one thing I was going to ask. I will. I will are... record things. <laughs> uh, and you know, I did things like I did a. I did an article about using an algorithm to generate a score that you could then play from. So oh, I did yes, that, uh, and that was some music that I recorded. I mean, mm. music is pushing it a little bit. Um, but I will, I will, it, it, I'll be making things that I want to play with. Mm. So that's always that. So, so with with um, with radio music, it was very much. I was really interested in this idea of uh, an automatic uh, uh, CV controlled radio. So I built a CV controlled radio. Yeah, build an actual CV. Yeah. So I built one, um, which I can show you if you want. Yeah. So I find it get that yeah. as a prop. Yeah, of course. Um, so that oh my God, look is in here. It's just like full of. It's like a graveyard of music thing. That is literally music the things. It's <laughs> where the music things are. So that was the CV controlled radio, which was a little radio chip from a German kind of kit, uh, and then just is this like FM or AM? that was FM. Yeah, uh, and it worked really well in here uh, <laughs> because i'm i'm in i'm in sort of near brixton yeah there were pirate, pirate stations radio, so you really get quite cool. interesting stuff and it and it again when you sequence it it is really interesting because you just get these bits of sound that come in from nowhere yeah it's great when you start running it through kind of delays and things it's it's really interesting uh and i remember taking that down to the uh brighton modular meets one year I've been quite, you know, pleased with my new invention. Yeah. Uh, and that 
it's in a different venue from where it is now, and the venue it was in was a Faraday cage. So it was literally this room with just sheet metal at the top and the bottom all around it. I don't know, and there was nothing there. There was no signal at all. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, and so I sort of realised that that was. You know, I think there's something very beautiful about like it's. It's also reminds me of the um, RF Nomad. You know? Yeah. And yeah. that 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 can, in all honesty, be a very frustrating module if yeah. you live somewhere where there's no signals. But yeah. there is an incredible beauty in the idea that you can only make music with the the sound that is around you. Yeah. It just is a deeply frustrating. Beauty. Well, that was there it, and that was. And there is a there's a fantastic. Uh, so John Cage did a lot of this stuff in the in the fifties, uh, where he would do compositions for like twelve radios, and you'd have twelve people, six people on stage, two radios each, and they would have very specific instructions about how to move the dials, to set the volume up and the volume down, and that would be the composition. But was that that was that. Based on a knowledge that there was anything on those frequencies, so just, so did, not at all. How did he arrive at that? And so there was a there was a, a, a story of he he performed I think in Italy, and for various reasons the concert was delayed and kept putting back, so it was getting put back later into the evening, and I think it was like eleven twelve o'clock when he came to perform, and in Italy at the time the radio stations all went off the air at about eleven o'clock, oh, and so and being him. He was like, this is fine, you know, this is... And also, it's all all random operations. So quite often, the volume was so low on the radio, you wouldn't be able to hear it anyway. <laughs> Never mind right. that it wasn't tuned into anything. So for him, this was this was fine. You do a concert. It was totally legitimate. And he actually... And actually, I think the piece that of his that's called radio music was his response to this and he said well I, I kind of rewrote a different version that was generally a bit louder because people were annoyed by like, it being just too pointless cage uh, just generally like upset people at his yeah. concerts and there's a lot of crit like things to be said i don't know how you would do that how would you actually upset audiences now to that extent i think it'd be very difficult it would be are we too jaded or are we just expecting uh, i don't know do you know what i mean it's like how could you well, I mean, you'd have to use politics, so you'd have to use, yeah. <laughs> you know. But Tune I think to LBC, yeah. just like the Farage's shows on. Being too extreme would be quite difficult musically. Mm. I think I don't. I don't. I mean, there will be things that will. I did see. I, I saw an artist the other day who performed, and for the first full sort of six or seven minutes, like which is a long time when you're there, it was just one arpeggio or it's like a stair step and then just that repeated possibly someone will be able to work out what that was now but it's just literally that and and all I think he was doing was applying a little bit of delay to go with it because he was playing with a laptop he had an album to promote and he had that and then he had a black box with stickers on it you know which I looked at I was like it must be a euro rack but it wasn't, and I think it pretty much just had like one delay pedal in it, as far as I'm concerned. And it was, you know, I'm just there. There's a point where it's sort of almost like, is there something wrong? And then when you look at the, the eyes, they're absolutely like bugging out and having a great time, yeah. except it's just literally playing back. Um, and it's that whole like, you know, as Peter Kern has talked about, the just press play, you know, and Dead yeah. House has as well. It's like, Actually, in fairness, that is something that, in, but that infuriates me. But I, I'm a musician, or I shouldn't call myself a musician. I'm a person who makes music, yeah. but I, you know, it pisses me off. And that actually is 
when you're not doing anything. Do you know what I mean? And but I that's like, a very specific because you can, you know, you can go to. I mean, anyone who's ever been to see a DJ playing knows that is a extremely valid way of entertaining a room Absolutely. full of people. A hundred percent. And so, but it depends what's on the you know what's yeah. on the ticket. You know, am I going to a DJ set or does it say live? And if it says but live, that's then a it very be live. specific. You know, interest. I mean, that's a very tiny subset of the audience, isn't it? And, and people as a way of enter- yeah, as a way of entertaining the audience. Even that whole thing of you know when you when you get pictures of here's a DJ and then somebody points out that their their turntable's not actually plugged in, in and it's yeah. all coming off a memory stick. Uh, if they they may well be entertaining and uh, the crowd may be enjoying it. Yeah, you know, and and it's who are we to say that's not a a valid thing to do i know yeah <laughs> that it just it like it sends me under but yeah it yeah no you're absolutely right if you have no idea then why would you care but then it's just is it subterfuge or does it even matter and maybe like you know i think about it myself as like developing a live system you know which is based on improvisation it's like am i just wasting my time and actually like you're only going to annoy audiences by having a bad day like, as in, if you just yeah. don't manage to catch a good loop on the Turing machine, then it's like, you know, you have a bad gig. Yeah. But people wouldn't even realise the risk that you put yourself yeah. in and or give a shit. And it's like, all they want to hear is good music. But so you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for them. Yeah. And that's fine. But, I mean, I think... But I, like I all, like, you know, slightly narcissistic <laughs> people, you want people to enjoy themselves also. It's like, but you do want... You, you want an audience to have a good time, I suppose. It's just... Um, I don't know. It, that for me is a bugbear born from from kind of the just plus play kind of school of thought. But I just don't know if I'm, you know, this is my own personal cross, but it's like whether it's even worth bothering. Perhaps we should just design the set and just make sure it's good. Yeah. I mean, as in just, yeah, yeah. it's just all done and you just do kind of press play. And then maybe you just put all your efforts into putting on some kind of show like, you know, yeah. Dancing, dancing, yeah. dancing like horses and just other <laughs> things. You know, like I've seen like bands that I don't like that much, but I've really enjoyed the show because of the visuals or like the. But the there, are, I mean, there, there is another side of that if you've got the right audience. So I saw, um, I saw Russell Haswell at, mm. at the Brighton Modular Meet mm. has an audience that is exactly that, and it's him standing in the back of the room with a laser, uh, and it was literally him playing waveforms and i really you know really enjoyed it i was like this is fantastic this is exactly what this is this is something you can only do with this stuff with a modular cr- yeah to a modular not, crowd do you think or yeah just well i don't know whether it's too much i mean you know i was i can only speak for what I, how i reacted to it which was that it was just a perfect thing for that audience in that moment yeah and it definitely wasn't something you would you know it would be you obviously could do that sitting there having a laptop sequencing through these things, but knowing that it wasn't quite that and the, the level of kind of chaos and weirdness in it made it felt like quite a kind of it was a brilliant craft like, activity. That absolutely, yeah. When it was like an appropriate use of modular technology yeah. in a sense, like it's something it does really well. Yeah, but then there are other people who will want to do something much more sequenced and controlled. And I thought, I mean, the other the the. Really fascinating one I saw at um, a loop in Berlin, saw uh, Susan Kiani playing. And she said that she essentially programmed her sequencer in like 1976, 1978, programmed a particular sequence of notes into the big sequencer she had. 
And she has been living inside that set of notes ever since. And everything she does uses that structure of notes. And when she went away and she got a new one, she had to then program that same structure of notes into it. And it means whenever she plays, it sounds like her. Mm. Um, and I thought that was just amazing as a kind of... Well, a, yeah, yeah, that you have a chord or like a sort of... And why not? Like, yeah. there's obviously... A, she's combining them in different ways. There's obviously like a myriad things to explore. Yeah. The other example of that is um, I'm looking at like, you know, do you know Stevio? Like the guy, it's like a sort of kind of modular techno guy, but it's more like I'll send you some of his music, but it's, it's amazing. He, he's doing a completely improvised system. But effectively, the way that he does it is he tunes all his oscillators to a kind of chord. Yeah. You know, and, that, and then it basically jams, closes, they're all, each oscillator goes through a filter, yeah. closes all the filters down, and then it's just about um, different ways to like send gates, different logic see, gate yeah, patterns, yeah. just to open those filters, yeah. to let the notes pop through. And then also he's sending shifts, offsets to them. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it fundamentally is, it's like find your chord and then kind of groove around that chord for an hour. Yeah. And he's he's, he's not retuning them mid-set, at least I don't think he is tremendously. So it's it's kind of a similar idea. Um, Although the other thing with Suzanne Ciani is when she's playing, it's in quadraphonic sound as well, which is amazing. Yeah. Which I'd never expect. Like I saw a play at Moogfest and it was like, I'd never experienced anything like that where... Holy crap! Like it's yeah. such a, it's sort of it's the kind of thing that if I thought about it ahead of time, I was like, kind of think it's like a bit of a cliche yeah. or it's a twee sort of notion. But actually, yeah. when you experience it, it's an extraordinarily beautiful and an immersive way to experience that sort of music. It's, it's yeah, much I saw better than stereo. Um, I saw Keith Phillips and Whitman at Cafe Otto doing that in quadraphonic, mm. and yeah, it was just an amazing thing. It's great. And it's like, it's something that the modular can do very well, I think, in the sense yeah. that you can send it control voltages and if you've got enough outputs, it's very easy to swirl things around. And the very... Create a sound, an immersive space to live in. And so the, um, the, the I did a talk at Machines in Music that was about the kind of early days of Buchler in San Francisco when he was doing the sound for like when the Grateful Dead started mm. his kind of acid trip stuff his, the like sound the box yeah exactly yeah. Uh, and what I hadn't realised was that that was fundamentally what the thing was used for so um, the first thing he built for David Tudor was uh, was exactly that it was to send different signals to different speakers and it had a kind of touch plate that would allow him to ping speakers, ping stuff around the room. Mm. So it was that, that quadraphonic thing was, well, I don't know how many speakers it was, but it was that that thing was right there at the very beginning of that. That's interesting. And almost before thinking about oscillators and, you know, filters and that sort of thing, it was take existing sound off tape and ping it around S- the room. Signal distribution. And, yeah, very, and that was obviously a, a massive part of that psychedelic, you know, if you put a whole bunch of people in the room with the Grateful Dead playing <laughs> and they're all on acid, yeah. it's still legal to 1968, and the Grateful Dead are playing through a Buchler system, which I think may not be exactly how it worked, but it's that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, you know, this crazy sort of thing was, was so different from the way people are using it now and doing stuff with it now. Mm. Yeah, there's certainly no rules back then. It's like none of, there were no tropes or conventions with the yeah. way those things were meant to be used. The signal distribution thing is interesting. It's like 
Is it, is, I don't really know many artists at all who are doing things like that, other than actually outside of galleries where, yeah. actually funny, it was, I was, um, oh, it was at Superbooth. Um, I got out for a day and went to the, um, I forget the name of the gallery that's basically the old train station, but they had a bunch of sound-based things in there, some really nice things, including one where um, it was basically like 12 sort of 30-foot wooden kind of bars yeah. with speakers, just passive speaker cones wired in and then just, you know, actual bra- or whatever brass, you know, speaker wire. Yeah. And then each row was basically one speaker. Right, know, yeah. So, yeah. And then there was, a, there was some kind of signal distributor and you would walk down this column, which was so was sort of 12 very long speakers that you're yeah. walking down a tunnel and it would have birds fluttering, doing loops around. Oh, know, wow. Things yeah. like this really yeah. kind of like extraordinary sort of sounding thing. Um, and it did get me thinking, I was just like, this is, this is really nice. And it's something that you can't, we can't, you know, we've all got really good speakers. We've all got really good headphones. We can kind of replicate a loud music experience, yeah. but we can't replicate an immersive music no. experience short of buying five general acts yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. exactly but who bothers like yeah the um actually in like i was just thinking about with um yeah with steve Reich, where it's like i've got that um 5.1 i bought the five. Oh right yeah and i've like i've no way of playing yeah. it <laughs> but i was like i must own this and in fact i ripped all of the channels yeah out separately so i've got them all separated yeah i'm meant to do things with them and play i'm really just set it up and play it but i've not yeah. done it yet because i thought i was like the best idea ever i was like, yeah. i can't believe you've done this it's brilliant yeah because it's i would love to live inside music for 18 musicians basically that yeah. would be like <laughs> so the other thing i did when i was in in new york was went to uh went to see lamont young playing so lamont lamont young is the composer who really started that whole kind of minimalist thing off so in 1958 he was at uh, berkeley and he wrote a thing called trio for strings and the first note of trio for strings lasts for four and a half minutes and it has no vibrato in it and it is just long 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 drones that goes on for an mm. hour creating different kind of chords as it goes um and it was completely sort of static but changing very very slowly over so time. it's very very slow it's not like four organs or something where it's no it's like if fast, you imagine a like... very very if you imagine four organs at kind of <laughs> 16 speed or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, great. um <laughs> and he then he then uh went to to Darmstadt with Stockhausen, he met John Cage, he moved to New York, and he started doing these um, kind of uh, text compositions. So he would have compositions like, um, uh, one is it has a picture of a chord, two notes, like a simple fifth chord, and it just says, hold for a very long time, <laughs> is the composition. Brilliant. One of them is, you know, uh, release butterflies in the room, there's a piece he wrote for David Tudor, which was uh, feed a bale of hay to a piano. <laughs> so he did a lot of play it as well. So just no, you literally it. just and the instructions are you feed it, and if it eats it, it's got certain instructions. If it doesn't, it's got other instructions. And he was then curating uh, Yoko and his loft in kind of 1960-62. And then in 1965 or something, he set up this thing called the Dream House which was in a loft in, in New York. Uh, and it was a series of oscillators playing sine waves 
in-house that ran for four years. Amazing. Playing these notes. The same notes? The same notes okay. for four years. Uh, and essentially that experience still exists now. Okay. So 275 um, Church Street in Manhattan. Uh, it's one of these tall buildings, got kind of pizza restaurants at the bottom. The second floor is... <laughs> I was going to say, do the property values drop I, I think, severely? I think, <laughs> I think it's not that loud. If you think okay, cool. So this, the second floor is his flat where he lives with his wife. They live on a five-day-a-week schedule. So their week is the normal length of time. But they have days that are like something like 24 hours on and 12 hours off. So they have only five days during a week. And that's how they live. They live in that in that world. Okay. Then the third floor is their performance space, which is the dream house. And the fourth floor is, is his archives. And he's now 82. And he he still plays. So I, I wanted to go and visit it when I was in New York and rang up and you know, emailed them and said, are you open? And they said, oh, no, we're not open because we've got a, a show on Saturday night. So I went along to the show. It was about 35, 40 people turn up and it's kind of white carpets and they're really strict about, you know, you're not allowed to talk, you're not allowed to take any pictures. Um, and you sit down and there is a drone playing throughout the whole house. Uh, which so this is, is at the house. This is at the, in the, in the place. Uh, and there's all these kind of purple and magenta lights. There's a 77 sine wave drone playing and it's also got six channels of kind of voices kind of mixed into it this kind of and it's it's a lot of it's kind of indian raga kind of thing and then eventually we're all sat there kind of cross-legged on the floor and then they come in and they sit and perform and it's it's lamont young his wife his kind of protege who's a bit younger uh two guitarists playing fretless guitars uh and a tabla player and they just play the drone carries on and they improvise over the drone drone. and then after about 45 minutes which is quite uncomfortable to be sitting (laughs) uh, it was very hot because they don't have air conditioning because it's too noisy and one of the things is the drone is based around uh 60 hertz okay and Lamont Young says that he now uses digital synthesizers to generate the the sound, uh, and he sometimes gets annoyed because the uh, sixty hertz mains hum is often not actually sixty hertz, and that interferes with the drones. <laughs> like discordance. When he when he plays in Europe, the whole thing is transposed to be based on fifty hertz. That's to make sure, make sure it doesn't interfere with the with the, the um, buzz coming out the of the buzz. speakers. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, after after about forty five minutes, you know, builds the clients and stops, and then they all they process out, and, and it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it was as a, it was as a, good. It, it was, was it was transcendent. It was, was I, I wouldn't. Was it? it was an amazing thing to go to. Right. Okay. And it was like I mean, the difference between some you know, you get artists who are. Um, so he so doesn't compromise in any way. Mm. So, you know, Philip Glass is making Hollywood movie soundtracks. Steve Reich will turn up and do clapping music at mm-hmm. any venue he's invited so, to yeah, until yeah, now. I'll have um, to go see him. Yeah, which I will go and see, and he's yeah, wonderful as well. He essentially, I mean, he's played, I think he's played once in Britain in the last 25, 30 yeah. years. In 19... 
97, I think, uh, his wife got ill and it was kind of height of Britpop and a bunch of bands like Pulp clubbed together and did a benefit for him at the Barbican or Royal Festival Hall or somewhere. And he refused to give permission for any of his work to be performed at it. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. So the, the, to benefit his wife. Uh, yeah, I That's... think he did then come over and play like a year later. But <laughs> okay. But you know he is. There, there is a compromise. You can't movies. hear any of his there music is. because it's not recorded. Or... It's not recorded. Right, okay. I mean, bits of it are recorded, but none of it's published. He he absolutely doesn't give permission for his music to be played anyway. So they did in the in I think the Barbican did a big history of American minimalism a few years ago and on the schedule it had various of his pieces when they came to form and said we haven't got permission to do these we're not allowed to do any of them so he's completely an utterly uncompromised and essentially if you want to see him you go to 275 Church Street his house new place uh, and I mean it's amazing that he and his his status is you know if you if you Look back at the history, it really did start with him, you know, and people like Brian Eno are like, he is the well that it all comes from. Um, so, and he's still there. But it's like, I can't, I don't know how to hear his music other than go there. No, I can't look Some of it's on, there are there are bootlegs and there's stuff on YouTube. You can hear kind of trio for strings on YouTube. He did this, comp- this composition called uh, The Well-Tuned Piano, where he got a like eight foot, whatever, Bosendorfer, piano the ultimate biggest one and he tunes it to what's the other tuning not just intonation or whichever the one that's not the, the one that the proper you know there's there's the one that we all use and there's the other tuning mm, i don't know yeah he tunes the whole thing to the other tuning um uh it's not equal temperament equal temperament okay. the one we all have yeah he changed it we have the compromise yeah he has, compromise. He has the pure and it does sound amazing when you hear it because it does sound like a piano but it's like incredibly bright and just somehow the, it the, sounds the, very I, different the only thing i understand about it is well i don't understand at all but i i heard there's a, a guitar that has weird frets yeah where it's been tuned in that way it's like it's there's no exactly compromise that, yeah. to the tuning yeah. it's been tuned like not like, I still don't, I cannot wrap my head around what is it. So the way it works is it's things like if you play, and I don't know enough music, things like if you play a third under our tuning, it always has a bit of a kind of shimmer to mm. it that's not quite in tune. The way a fifth is perfectly in tune yeah. and there's no oscillation, I think a third is always slightly out of tune. It's average, basically. Because that means you can it play work. it in any key. Right. As I understand it, if you're using the other one which I can't remember what it is <laughs> um, you can only play in a certain key but things like sevenths are completely perfect and thirds are completely perfect and it generally just sounds much clearer and purer so he did he got this piano and then he he did multiple performances of a five and a half six hour long improvisation nice. on this nice. which there is a there is an album of it that costs about Fifteen hundred dollars on discogs if you track it down. So like in the Alan Strange book, if you like, yeah, you find a copy. It's like a billion pounds. Yeah, it's, it's like exactly that. One on Amazon. <laughs> oh, God, that's uh, yeah, that is amazing. I do like the idea that people who are just ruthlessly uncompromising and in no way sort of pandering to any notion of sort of fame, celebrity, or yeah. like you know trying to appeal to people that people just yeah. have a ruthless vision that they stick to and it's like 
screw the world if you like. All his concerts say in big letters, this is not entertainment. <laughs> not this one, but the one, the one I played in London, I was all close to it, and he says this. And I think when he did the stuff at Yoko and his lofts, it was like, this is not for entertainment. Did he make? He says that. It's, yeah, it's I think that's in. I think that was in the the kind of program with the other. And, and it's you know he. That's a, quite entertaining as a sort of thing to say. Yeah. I think you must realise the irony. <laughs> <laughs> We're not meant to enjoy this. No. Is he making a? Is he making a statement? Is he? Do you think he's? I, I think he, he, he is. Ex- whimsical well, he clearly has a sense of humour. You can tell from those compositions in 1960. But. Uh, he is. He does seem to be extremely serious. Did you, you and, and his, speak to him? Presumably, no, no, I didn't speak to him. I mean, his, so there's a. Um, I think Jeremy Grimshaw wrote a, a biography of him, and he, like, worked with him and lived with him and stuff and knew him really well. And when the book was coming to con- its conclusion. They completely fell out, and now there is an entire website that is Lemoyneur and all of his associates explaining what a terrible and wrong book this is and why it should never have come out. Brilliant. God, I wonder if I'll be like compromising like that. It's like I think about, um, yeah. like you know, when I'm that age, I want to be tinkering on a like music easel, like yeah, 200e, just in my corner playing with Ableton. Yeah, that's like a sort of grey hair. Old man, I yeah. think I do think that, like, as in the musical, I don't know. I, th- I think feel that old age will be a lot more entertaining because we just have better equipment now, yeah. we have better toys, <laughs> and there's a lot to be explored. Like, we yeah. definitely haven't gotten to the bottom of music. I think that's fair to say. Although I don't know what future music styles look like. It's actually something I was going to ask you about, which was. Not music, because I don't think it's possible to work out what the future of music is going to sound like, but these things may be related. It's like, what do you think is the, what is the future of music technology? And it's kind of what is, what is both good and bullshit about the current state of music technology? Because I think music technology is what's going to inform what music becomes. It obviously, it does already inform what music becomes because it limits your equipment, limits you, you know, you can... If you have a guitar, you make guitar music, or do you? I think, I mean, I think the the thing I find interesting about music gear is that it's so, it's like the reason people play electric guitars is always going to be, you know, 5% the sound what it lets them do, and 95% other things. And for different people, it's different things. Some, you know, the, the entire history of kind of pop music is people looking cool playing guitars yeah. <laughs> or the whole economics of that is people reaching their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and being able to buy the things they wanted when they were 13 and 14 mm. and i think that's where it gets so interesting kind of culturally and interesting as a thing to talk about and interesting as a thing to be involved in is because just this enormous world of baggage that is around it that is constantly interesting. And the reason why people want things is interesting. The reasons why people use things is interesting. But the actual the actual core of the technology does feel like it's got incredibly advanced and sophisticated and optimised within computers. So if you're wanting to make music that sounds interesting and strange and unusual you will be doing it on a computer 
and it will be very much more strange, much more unusual. Uh, and, you know, the experimental music, you know, art music or computer music that it, and experimental music is often far more far out if it's in that computer world. Oh, and I think it makes me think of Orteca. And the, yeah. So Russell Haswell was blended yeah. with Orteca. It's like, and that was definitely computer music. Yeah. And, and it's extraordinary. And they may be also, and I think for making music yourself, it's often much more enjoyable to have an interface to play with. It's much more enjoyable to have something that makes you happy when you look at it. It's much more enjoyable to have all of those things which way people do it. But the actual real future of it, it feels like it's late to be that. I mean, I thought the 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 Google deep learning with sound stuff that came out last year was just extraordinary, where they were synthesizing and creating sound waves in real time based on learning other things. So you feed it a bunch of piano music and it's not playing samples. It's not listening to it. It is literally synthesizing something that sounds like music according to what it's learnt and you listen to it and it sounds like piano music but really strange because it doesn't understand some of it you feed it speech and it sounds like people talking but you can't even understand their words and you can't quite place their accent and you can't quite make sense of it and so there are things in that in terms of how you will be able to edit sound how you'll be able to create sound differently that that feel like i suppose it's you remember when things like autotune first came out which was i think invented by a guy or it was either the geologist you know, yeah, the geologist. yeah so the <laughs> people studying you know sonic stuff going on the ground so it became very very good at manipulating waveforms and one of them said actually we can do this with with um with sound and I can remember 10 years ago really looking at, is it possible to do polyphonic pitch shifting and to feed something a chord and then go into the chord and move things up and down? And at the time, it was simply impossible and people couldn't see how it could be possible. Uh, it seemed like, you know, the whole problem of polyphonic trans, trans, transcription seemed to be a problem that might just not ever be solved. And then that was solved, you know, about five years ago or so. I still am in here. Um, yeah. And so there will be breakthroughs like that that may well just slip into... And, and things like that would have slipped very, very quickly into popular music, I think, now. Mm. So when you listen to the music that's on Radio 1, there is an incredible arsenal of kind of firepower going into that, into making this extraordinary layers of kind of polish and the extraordinary just kind of manipulations of it. And I don't much enjoy listening to that myself, but if I was wanting to study where that that edge is, at the moment it does feel quite a lot like that would be. You know, there's a lot of the, the journey from a lab somewhere to a hit record is probably quite effortless and quite quite fast mm. at the moment. People's appetite for equipment is so vociferous. And yeah. it's, it's it's easier than ever to learn about it. Yeah. If someone does have a good idea, it's very quick before, you know, it's not long before everyone's got a hold of it and is yeah. actually yeah. iterating and, and using it. And I think, yeah, but I mean, I think in terms of hardware, it's very different. I think in terms of hardware, you, you, the, the thing that's been amazing is just how the barriers to entry have, have fallen so, so fast. And this kind of, the, the, it's the sort of smartphone dividend 
all of the infrastructure that's been built in China to make, you know, incredible smartphones that cost 30 quid and have a supercomputer and a full colour touchscreen now mean anything that uses anything like that is, is easy. And the chips that are in all the digital modules we have now, the screens in the digital modules we have now, all come from that, <laughs> that dividend. Uh, and I think the challenge then is working out how to build the interfaces and the things to make it to make it useful. I would also posit suggestively that then it's it's the onus is on the the equipment designers to suggest the new ways of using equipment yeah. by designing interfaces. Is yeah. it's almost you know in the same way that like a three hundred three begats three hundred three style music. Yes, yeah. that that because you've designed something a certain way that it just suggests a use and it's and if yeah. the equipment designers are designing truly unusual instruments i'm thinking of like you know um you know seat lombard or however yeah. it's pronounced that yeah, kind yeah. of thing where it's just like when you look at it you're like what the fuck is this yeah that those things you know that that it's the designer that can that can inadvertently create new forms of music by yeah. the, by suggesting new ways to use equipment. And I think when you get into that that world of computer music, it is it is very much how do you take that power and turn it into something useful. And you see things, I mean, something like the DX7 algorithm, that FM algorithm that, that Chowning created and Yamaha licensed, that still nobody's come up with a useful interface for that. You know, that was a, an extraordinary piece of sound generating equipment in the in the 80s, um, but it wasn't a sound shaping interface mm. particularly. And there is a, an unsolved problem to be solved there. You know, nobody's actually... You know, and, and I think the idea that having 300 knobs to control it is somehow solving the problem isn't solving the problem. Uh, and I think when you get into that computer music, that that is the issue over and over and over again. Is if you're if you've got genuinely new ways of creating sound, like the the sort of granular stuff is the same. Nobody's come up with a solution for how do you really make that useful as an interface in the, in the in the right way. You know, mm. I think that's where you know Olivier had frustrations with what he did with the clouds mm. that he clearly didn't feel was, the way that I feel is well he I think he just didn't feel he'd solved that problem it goes back to that thing of saying how do you make it small and simple and easy and going back to talking about radio music that was if you're making a sampler you can obviously see a million different things that you can put in a sampler and there are a million different features and you see these sampler devices that have got multiple screens and multiple controls multiple ins and multiple outs i just wanted to go completely the other way and say literally how how much can you take out of it how can you get it so it's it's literally just whatever the minimum is and then i think it's about learning how you patch into it and patch mm-hmm. out of it it's yeah, learn what, like it's actually useful within it it's yeah you've limited the parameters enormously but then it's almost like a little puzzle as a musician i remember like playing with the radio music for the first time and going like like, like, oh yeah, if I do this, then yeah. you can get time stretching and stuff yeah. by like having multiple repeat time and slowly scrubbing. Yeah. Um, or you can load it up with a bunch of, of loops the same length and start fading between them, and you can. And mm. there's there's things you can you can do with it, but you because it's limited, you're able to learn it and you're able to get 
all of it, I think. You're able to master it in a way yeah. that you can't on DX7 because it's there's too many parameters. Well, it's a difficult thing to... Yeah, it's a, it's, and I think with DX7, it's more the actual physical kind of UX of the interface. It's like, even if... And I, I found with the little the Volker FM, mm. you start playing with it, well, it's not actually that complicated you know you're always given no, this not, idea that doing six, anything with fm was completely well, impossible six envelope generators but actually yeah pitches. you can start playing with it and go okay i can see this but it's you're doing it through a letterbox the thing like um yeah i just could return to Orteca is like almost certainly or it seems that their live show you know and i'm supposing this but like you listen to it and it just it sounds like algorithms controlling fm engines yeah so effectively what that you know maybe the solution is that you then have your your army of algorithms and you give yourself five macro controls to yeah. sort of operate and let the machine do the hard work yeah. the hard complex work yeah so that you can you can just give it an instruction say make that color or that shade and it will fly off and yeah. turn all of the adjust all the dials for you adjust yeah. all the numbers and essentially that's what any digital module is doing you know any control can be controlling as many different parameters mm. as you want it to be controlling at once. It's just, but surely design, it's designing the ranges. It's making it so make means, sense. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that, so as a musician, you then, you, you learn via muscle memory, how to get certain sounds. I think like, as one brilliant example of that is like the herb verb. Yeah. You ever play with that? It's that seven dials, but it's it just like every dial has such a clearly defined sonic purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I could close my eyes and you could say to me what type of reverb you would like and I will be able to get you a very good yeah. effort at that reverb type. I mean, that in some ways is what I think is really interesting is the difference between something that people can get emotionally invested in and get excited by and want to have. And afford. And afford rather than something, or not afford. You know, I mean, that's the other thing. As if you can create, and I think it's really interesting when you look at the big companies like the Fenders and people who you can buy a legal Stratocaster made by them from what about 150 quid to about six grand, yeah. and the cheaper ones will have a Squire label on it, and the more expensive ones will have a Fender label on it. But they have that entire range from top to bottom that they own, they control, and there are lots of competitors that make the same thing, but they're not allowed to call it Stratocaster. Mm. Um, and I think it's so interesting that model compared with what we're in at the moment where Moog will make a mini Moog and just one mm -hmm. and it'll cost you whatever it costs. Three and a half grand. Three and a half grand. Uh, but then, but they're leaving it to, to Behringer to say, we're going to make the 300 quid one. Mm. It feels like there's a lot that people in our world can learn from how those big proper companies have been operating for years. And just seeing what what how do you give people what they want to buy at the price they want to buy it, rather than saying okay everything is going to cost this up here. I think you know in in Eurorack I think there's, it's different because we're all tiny tiny companies, but with Eurorack obviously the great innovation there is that it's for part work. <laughs> you buy one one at a time as you go along. Mm. Um, it almost it almost seems affordable yeah. as, as you go. <laughs> so when you turn back and see yeah. the thing in the corner, you're like, oh, yeah. Think, when you come to insure it, yeah, you have a terrible, terrible afternoon. Yes. <laughs> cool. Cool. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks for your time. Good. Cheers. <laughs>
so? That was me and Tom in the garden shed in Hearn Hill following some chicken. Well, I got the chicken. Uh, Tom had had a nice dinner in his house. What a dude. I love the story about Lamont Young especially. The whole, this is not entertainment, absolutely killed me. What an absolute G that man is. Just literally zero Fs given a man who is not operating on the normal sort of plane. So that draws us to a close. Please check out Tom's projects. There's lots to point you at. Obviously, go to, if you Google music thing, I would encourage you to try and go to Tom's Medium page where he has a bunch of really interesting articles that he's written covering a great many topics. He is obviously a very interesting person to read. And I think the other th main thing is check out his latest project. If you're a modular person, he's got a brand new spring reverb that he's extremely, extremely proud of, justifiably. Check that out. It's on at thonk.co.uk. That's where you can actually buy the kit to make it. And actually, mentioning the medium thing, there's a really interesting article about the history of spring reverbs entitled Everything I Know About Spring Reverbs, which Tom has written, which I also recommend that you read. So check it out. Thank you for listening. I love you greatly. I'll see you soon.